following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Each week we practice different types of prayer, and uh, once a month we practice um, engaging with uh, prayer and um, scripture in a, a meditative or a more reflective way. So today, um, I thought that we could, in this Advent season, uh, engage with some of the uh, one of the Advent scriptures um, uh, in a style of lecto, lectio divina. Um, so uh, I'll be reading the text um, several times, and I'll instruct you in the different ways that we'll be reading through the text. Um, so as I usually invite you to. Um, Hold a posture of awakeness and awareness as you um, engage and experience uh, the text so that you may draw nearer to God. And you're welcome to find any posture that's comfortable for you, whether it's with your eyes closed or open. Uh, anything that for you, um, again, will help you engage and experience this text. The first stage of Lectio Divina is the Lectio, the reading. And the practice is meant to help you um, reflect on the text, let this text sink in, so you are engaging actively with the text with an active listening. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'm going to tell you where this is from. This is Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The second stage of Lectio Divina is the Meditatio in which you are ruminating on the text, reflecting in a way that, again, is active. In your rumination, you may find a, a word that you grab onto as you listen. And I'll read through it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.
The third passing through the scripture is the oratio, or the prayer. It's our response to what we hear. This is, if possible, letting your thoughts aside and allowing your heart to speak to God as you listen to the text. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The final reading of this prayer is really meant to allow you to rest in the word, putting away thought or any desire to respond or to pray, to simply allow yourself to rest in the word so that the word may speak to you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I pray that Uh, This practice today was fruitful for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I'm um, excited and a little bit nervous to share with you this morning, and I'll tell you why, because I had a really intriguing experience of studying the scriptures this week, which I want to try to bring you along into. Um, But the problem is, the experience that I had with the scriptures this week was very intriguing and um, profound for me. And uh, number one, I have no idea if it will be intriguing and profound for you. And number two, I didn't land anything. I didn't figure out any, like, for sure application point or anything like that. So the end of this sermon is not going to have, like, a... And we would have got away with it if it wasn't for you meddling kids kind of moment, right? It's it's not going to happen. But I trust that uh, if you come along with me on this little tour that I'm about to take you on, um, and, my, and I certainly hope that you will find some of the same um, bewilderment and uh, amazement and surprise that I found in, in what happened with me this week. So I'm just going to share that with you. I'm putting it out at the beginning so that you know, um, and we'll, we'll just see what happens, all right? So I'm going to take you on a tour of mysteries that I don't totally understand. The Gospel lection, the reading for the third Sunday of Advent in year C, which is today, is from Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. And I would encourage you to look it up in your Bibles uh, or on your Bible apps or to find one of these red Bibles, which are in the seat pockets in the middle sections and under the chairs on the wings. Uh, I even have the page number here 
for those of you who um, need that. This is a continuation uh, of last week's text, which was the beginning of Luke chapter 3. And I'm going to treat it in three sections, all right? The first section, starting in verse 7. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Um, Not necessarily uh, what somebody might advise, a preacher to say to a crowd of people who have just begun to gather around, but that's what he says. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now, remember, this is a continuation of what happened last week. So we've had seven days in between it, but there was maybe seven seconds in between what he said last week and what he's saying right here. Last week we talked about repentance as uh, uh, an idea of changing your mind toward love specifically. This whole chapter is about repentance, so we can't miss the connection there. He goes on, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So last week, we had sort of a warm, fuzzy message about repentance, didn't we? It's about changing your mind. And what do you change your mind to? You change your mind to love, always. Repentance always is a turn toward love. The warm fuzzies go away, (laughs) as of verse 7. He says, you have to bear fruit worthy of repentance, which is a a kind of a challenging idea to think about, especially from our Protestant uh, salvation by faith, not by works worldview, which I affirm, by the way, lest you... uh, Want to ride me out on a rail. But he says that you have to bear fruit that's worthy of your repentance. He seems to be saying talk is cheap. And don't we all know that it is? The um, type of repentance that he would be describing here um, is what St. Augustine calls a barren repentance. And uh, if you were here early enough to see the worship meditation, uh, it was from St. Augustine. I'm going to put it up here again so that you can uh, see it again. Even repentance will not appear to be of much use to us if works of mercy do not accompany it. Those who have not produced such fruits have no reason to suppose that by a barren repentance they will earn pardon for their sins. Okay. The warm fuzzies are gone, right? By the way, what is our Christian equivalence, I wondered this week, of when the Jews would say, we have Abraham as our ancestor. This is our spiritual trump card. What is the, what is the, there's a, there must be some analogous, passive, absorbed Christianity that has no fruit of the Spirit. The... The letter from James says, faith without works is dead. Belief without action is meaningless. So uh, he's kind of turned his posture here a little bit. This is the, let's go on to the second section. It starts in verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then should we do? Now this question is going to be asked three times in the next few verses. 
And it's a question that we all ought to be asking as well. What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him. Here's the second time it's occurring. Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him. The third time the question is asked. And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. What do these answers that he gives these three groups of people have in common? Well, they all seem to be about money and wealth and possessions. And he seems to indicate in each case that if you're not bearing fruit worthy of your repentance, it might be because you are preoccupied with financial stability or gain particularly in a time when there are people going hungry. That's the first answer, right? If you have two coats, you have to give one to somebody. If you have extra food, you have to give it to somebody. There's a very obvious social justice thread coming through this passage at this point. Let's move on to the third section, starting in verse 15. As the people were filled with expectation, which, by the way, is a very adventy thing to be filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, and here it is, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, here again with the word baptize, just as with the word repent, we have a word that has almost no secular meaning. When's the last time you heard anybody use the word baptize outside of uh, a church? But the, the, the word that, that's used here for baptize, the Greek word for baptize, it just simply means immerse or submerge or wash. So, when he says, I am baptizing you with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, he's talking, the the imagery there is Jesus is going to immerse you or submerge you into fire. What does this evoke for us? I'll give you a clue. It was seven days ago for us, but only seven seconds ago for them. You remember last week? Were you here last week when we talked about the refiner's fire? where a precious metal would be submerged and baptized into fire for the purpose of cleaning it. So yes, there is, um, there is going to be a moment in the church's history where the Spirit descends in fire. Right? And, and this is um, foreshadowing that to an extent. But I think even more than that, it's simply calling back what he just said, that when Jesus comes, he comes like a, re- a refiner's fire, a cleansing fire. He goes on to say, his winnowing fork, that is Jesus' winnowing fork, is in his hand. To clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
I know that most of you thresh wheat already, but for the couple of you in the room who don't thresh wheat, let me explain to you what happens, right? The wheat plant has two parts. It has the, the wheat, the actual grain that we eat and makes our bellies fat, uh, and it has the chaff, which is kind of like the husk, right? And of course, the separation of the two is important if you're going to use the wheat grain for baking and so forth. Uh, now it happens with machines uh, like that are electric or gas-powered or something. Uh, at this time, uh, threshing wheat was done by hand, very often with a winnowing fork. And I have a picture here um, that came from National Geographic of a man threshing wheat, and they would catch up all the dried plants and throw it into the air on a windy day, and it would separate the wheat and the chaff, and the chaff would blow away, and the wheat would fall to the threshing floor. I had this image in my head reading about the threshing floor over the years that it was like a, sort of like the wheat equivalent of a killing floor in a slaughterhouse. It's like it's probably a room in a basement somewhere, right? No, it's just it's more like a patio. There's stone or concrete on the ground, and you do this thing outside, right? the threshing floor. And John is warning that when Jesus comes, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's drawing a line in the sand, if you will. And then the last verse in that passage. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. <laughs> How many of you heard what I just said about fire and wheat being separated and burned off and thought, that's good news? <laughs> if it doesn't seem like good news to you, you might want to check your privilege, to use an overused phrase. You've probably never needed somebody's extra coat and had them not be willing to give it to you. If you did, this might seem like good news. You probably never had money stolen from you by a corrupt government official, like many of the poor people in the day had. And so this, this indication that that is going to result in people being burned up and blown away, the bad people, that was good news. Hopefully you've never been bullied or accused by a soldier. Again, the people in this day had had that experience. They were, in, they were under Roman occupation. So it would be fairly easy to preach a strong message on social justice and concern for the poor from this passage to focus on how central that is to Jesus' message, and it is. And that's probably what would have happened today if in my regular, outside of sermon preparation, devotional reading, I had not been reading the book of First Chronicles. Uh, and here's where it get, might get a little bit fun, <laughs> and maybe a little bit weird, and a little bit confusing. It was all three of those things for me. Uh, the books of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, are one of two places in the Hebrew Bible that tell the story of the kings of the Israelites, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and so on. And I've been reading um, First Chronicles for a while now. Um, honestly, it's not my favorite part of the Bible. There's a lot of bloodshed, violence, uh, a lot of boring lists. But I happened to read First Chronicles 21 this week, and I saw something that caught my eye, made me slow down a little bit, stop glazing over as I was reading, which, yes, I do that too. And I looked a little bit closer. And if you'd like to look a little bit closer, you can go to 1 Chronicles 21 in the Bible here. Uh, but I'm not going to read this text to you because the chapter is too long to read aloud. We'll run out of time. 
But the closer I looked at it, the more fascinating it became. And so what I want to do is summarize for you what happens in 1 Chronicles 21, and maybe you'll read it on your own this week or something like that. It uh, starts out with King David ordering a census of the nation, which is identified in the passage as sinful. As a matter of fact, it says Satan tempted him or persuaded him to take this census. And we don't know exactly why this would have been considered sinful, but it seems like it might have something to do with a human king trying to take the place of God, the true king of Israel, and saying, these people are mine, and I want to quantify exactly how much power I have. And David, against the warning of his advisor, takes the census, and so God meets out a punishment, not only on David, but on Israel as a nation. A plague that comes and kills 70,000 of the Israelites. And then uh, the angel of the Lord is standing over Jerusalem with a broadsword drawn. And this angel is where things get interesting. When the Lord sees the angel about to destroy Jerusalem at the Lord's own command, he relents, the Lord that is. Now that's what the NRSV says, that he relents. Anybody want to take a guess as to what the verb actually is? Repents. He changes his mind. Now, where exactly does this take place, this this divine repentance? The angel of the Lord in verse 15 of 1 Chronicles 21, it says, was then standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. You don't need to know who Ornan the Jebusite was. I don't know either. And it gets weirder from there. David buys this plot of land where the threshing floor exists from Ornan the Jebusite, and he buys everything on it, and he uses it to set up an altar to the Lord. And he offers the different sacrifices on the altar, and he prays to the Lord, And the Lord answers him by sending fire onto the altar. This very site, the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, will later become the site where King Solomon constructs the temple of the Lord. You read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. What's more... It is also identified as being on Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham took Isaac up to the top of the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice in that bizarre and troubling story in Genesis 22, I think it is. This is a holy site. It already was, and it becomes even more so. And all of this because of a census. Now, what purpose does a census serve? In the ancient world, there's two reasons why you would conduct a census. So you would know how many people you could tax, and so you would know how many people you could raise into a standing army. The latter is explicitly mentioned in First Chronicles 21. It talks about how many... Uh, Israelites can draw the sword. 
Now, looking back at Luke chapter 3, this story all about repentance and fire, which groups are specifically mentioned by Luke as responding to God's warning to bear fruit worthy of repentance? There's the crowd, and then there's two specific groups. Who are they? Tax collectors and the soldiers. The people who are somehow connected to the act of a census. Isn't this wild? And this detail about the tax collectors and the soldiers interacting with John the Baptist is unique to Luke's telling of the gospel. The story of John the Baptist baptizing people in the wilderness and Jesus coming to be baptized exists in all four gospels. It's one of only a few stories that's in all of them. But the detail about the tax collectors and the soldiers only appears in Luke's gospel. Why might Luke be thinking about these agents of the state and their need to repent in connection with John the Baptist? Well, if you read the end of chapter 3 in Luke's gospel, you find out what happens to John. John rebukes Herod, the tetrarch, one of the four rulers in the Roman Empire, because of all the evil things that he had done. And Herod locks John up in prison. And John ain't coming back. (laughs) Well, his head is coming back on a platter eventually. So John the Baptist is a political agitator. And it's very easy for us to read this story and not pick up on any political stuff at all. You start thinking about tax collectors and soldiers and John the Baptist, and we all know by the time this gospel's written, what happened to John the Baptist and why. And it begins to sort of fall into place that this is some kind of political message. But as I said, I don't entirely know what's going on here. Repentance, a threshing floor, fire, taxes, soldiers, political agitation. Is Luke deliberately making an allusion to that famous moment in Israel's history where David purchases the threshing floor and God repents of his intentions to destroy Jerusalem? Certainly that story would have been commonly and widely known by all the Jewish believers of the day, if not by some of the Gentiles who were there. I have to think that those who knew their Hebrew Bible and who knew the stories of the kings, especially the most important king, David, from whose line the Messiah was promised to come. I have to think that they would have known this story and that as John the Baptist interacts with these groups of people and later as Luke tells the story in this particular way, that they would have seen the connections in a way that I never did until just a couple days ago. But as to why... I don't quite know. Is he making a point about the politics of the empire? Maybe. One thing that does seem clear is that he is connecting Jesus, the coming Messiah, whom he will baptize shortly after this account in this same place. 
with the story of the threshing floor, he's connecting him to David, Israel's greatest and most beloved king. He's connecting him to the temple, which was constructed in that same place. He's connecting him to sacrifice, which was conducted in that temple. He's connecting Jesus, perhaps most of all, to the mercy of God, who repents of his intention to destroy, because the sacred anointed king stands in that gap. And I think one of the great things about Advent is that we connect ourselves to this grand story of God and God's people. Remember uh, in the first week of Advent when I was trying to think of that word that means you experience something that somebody else has experienced? The word is vicariously, right? So in Advent, we vicariously anticipate the coming of the Messiah, who as Christians we already believe has come in the person of Jesus. But either way, We are caught up in this big, beautiful, complicated, intertwining, confusing, bigger than could, we could possibly understand story. And what is the message of Advent if it's not the message of God coming close to us? God, as a matter of fact, joining our story, coming to earth in the form of a little tiny human being, not entirely unlike the ones that we dedicated a few minutes ago. We join God's story as Christians because Jesus joined our story as humans, as people. And if this little tour of mysteries that I took you on this morning leads nowhere but to the idea that we are part of a big, beautiful, confusing intertwining story. I hope that that is enough on this third Sunday of Advent to inspire you and to draw you closer to Jesus. So let's pray together. God, we thank you as always for your word for the scriptures in which we see your grand story emerging and unfolding in ways that we don't understand, in ways that cause us to question and even doubt, in ways that condemn us and convict us, in ways that inspire us and redeem us, in ways that allow us to see your mercy and forgiveness. We pray now that as we stand in this kind of confusing place with all these images, all these histories swirling around us, that somehow we would know that we are part of your story too because Jesus became part of ours. And that through him we are connected to King Solomon and King David and Ornan and Abraham and Isaac, and all who have gone before us in your great story. 
And we pray that with Jesus as our guide, we would continue to be part of your unfolding story, to be part of the bringing about of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Give us courage, we pray, to be part of it. And to know Jesus more and more deeply with each passing day. It's in his name that we pray and ask. Amen. Well, um, the response to this great mystery in Scripture, uh, and by the way, if you figured it all out, please just tell me. I would love to hear the answer. Um, but the response to that mystery is, is to come to another mystery. Sacrament means mystery, by the way. Um, this great ritual of the Christian faith, to which I have the privilege of inviting each one of you now, is a time of remembering Christ's sacrifice, both in the bread representing his body and the cup of wine and juice representing his blood. But it's more than just a symbol. It is a sacred mystery. And uh, he is present here in these elements somehow, in some way that we don't understand. And so I invite each person here who is seeking to follow him and know him more, who is on the mysterious tour following after him, to come to this table. You don't need to be a member of our church or of any church. You simply need to be trusting in Jesus for your salvation. And because of that, the, level, the playing field is entirely leveled. Each one of us comes to Jesus seeking mercy and grace at the same level, which is a total and complete need. So as we continue to sing and worship him in that way, I invite you to come and worship him in the sacrament of Holy Communion. Uh, if you'd like to receive prayer, there'll be a member of the prayer team here under the cross who would be happy to pray with you. If you want to sit in your seat and reflect and pray and observe, that's entirely okay as well. Um, I just ask that you respond however you might be sensing God speaking to you and acting in your life this morning. Our table is open. Come as you will. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.